22, we'll start at uh, verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to, pre to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been de decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them might be the one who would do this. A dispute also rose among them uh, as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The, king of the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. You are, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom." and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In church history, uh, there was a calendar that the church followed, and uh, very early in church history, they began celebrating uh, Easter season and uh, the Passover time. And uh, some of the earliest Bibles we have of the church are actually called lectionaries. And uh, they are collections of readings uh, in, written in Greek, uh, that the church would use and uh, they would have certain readings laid out and the church would come in and they'd have their lectionary and that's what they would read. About uh, one-third of the Greek texts that we have today are lectionaries uh, used in the church uh, for readings. And a lot of those readings were from the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, my brother was telling me there's an old high school buddy who wants to get a hold of me uh, Ducharme, that's his last name. And then he said, uh, you remember the names of the brothers? And I said, well, I knew John. 
Well, he goes, well, the other brothers are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. (laughs) I had forgotten that. But I thought, that's a great name for four brothers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, We have four Gospels, and uh, all four of them tell the story of Jesus' life. But most importantly, they concentrate on the last week of his life, uh, that Passion Week from uh, the Saturday until the Sunday, the next Sunday, those eight days, uh, nine days, so important in the life of Jesus. That's the bulk of the material that we have in the Gospels. I think they're telling you this is, this is what's most important about the life of Jesus Christ, about him going to the cross and giving his life on behalf of the world. And so that's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about Passion Week, and uh, we have now come to the night before or the day before the crucifixion. Uh, Brent already read it. Uh, let me point out to you that in Luke 22, he says, The feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And Jesus says, I want to eat the Passover with you. And there is a problem between the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have Jesus eating a Passover meal. John has Jesus dying on the day of the preparation for the Passover. And it's hard to figure that out. And so uh, as people talk about the Bible and try to explain it, they go, well... Matthew, Mark, and Luke were wrong. Jesus couldn't be eating the Passover because John says that actually Jesus is dying and dies right when they're killing the Passover lambs. And then they celebrate the Passover the next day. That's why they have to take Jesus off the cross. It's a high holy day. Not only is it a Sabbath, it happens to be a very Passover. It makes it a double special day You can't have someone hanging on the cross on a double special day. Um, I don't know how to solve that problem. However, my way of solving it is Matthew, Mark, and Luke are right. Jesus eats the Passover. And John is right. Jesus dies on the preparation of the Passover. And I can't figure that out. I, I don't have to. Right? I think I think they're both right. I don't know how they're I don't know how they're right. Now there are all kinds of explanations for how they're both right. All of those explanations to me, although possible, are unconvincing. The scriptures don't tell us how it's right. So my way of I, I just take it at face value. Mark and Luke say he's eating the Passover. They know what the Passover is all about. Mark His family is the family that has the upper room. When Jesus goes to eat this, that's his family house that they're eating it in. He knows about the Passover. John knows about the Passover. He has relatives who are priests. That's how he gets into Jesus' trial. He's like Jesus' family. Every year they would go to the Passover. And, of course, Jesus and his family went to the Passover every year. It would take them at least two weeks. Two weeks out of their schedule, they would leave their homes and they would go to Jerusalem. They would celebrate the Passover. They would celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread that would last for seven days. And then they would go back home. That was their holiday. That's what they did for holidays. Every year they went to Jerusalem for Passover. Uh, Nero once wondered, he did not think the Jews were that important as a people. And so they wanted to prove to him how important Judaism was for the Roman Empire. 
And so one year, they had the high priest count how many lambs they killed at the Passover to prove to Nero how important Judaism was. And so they counted the lambs, and I've got the number written down here. I've got to find my note. They counted uh, 256,500 lambs. 256,500 lambs killed in one day. And so for Passover, every priest had to be present, and every priest had to work. And you were busy. And the Levites had to take the lambs, and they had to skin the lambs. So not only do you have the priests helping slaying the lambs, some of the blood is then taken to the altar in the temple and sprinkled at the altar. People would then take their lamb, and they would go, and they would roast. You had to roast the lamb. You couldn't boil it. And so you would begin roasting it over a fire. You would invite all your family and all your friends to eat it with you because you had to consume the entire lamb before midnight. And so uh, a lamb could weigh 50, 60 pounds of meat. So uh, you, were, you were full of lamb <laughs> by the time midnight rolled around. And whatever was not consumed had to be burned in the fire. And uh, the Levites would do the skinning. 256,500. Now, scholars today don't accept that number. They think it's wildly inflated. Um, let's just take for a minute and say that that's the, the right number, 256,000. Uh, you would need at least 10 people for every lamb, at least 10. That's 2.5 million people. would make Jerusalem the largest city in the world for Passover at that time. Not only the largest city in the world, it would be the largest gathering of people in the world. And they're trying to point these facts out to Nero so that Nero would understand Judaism is, is, is fairly important. The Passover is huge uh, for the Jewish people. And of course, the Passover symbolized when God delivered the people from, from Egypt. Now, in my mind, I always think of the Ten Commandments. I don't know why, and I picture it that way. And in the Ten Commandments, as they shed the blood, Joshua takes some of the blood and he puts it over an Egyptian's house. Remember that? Because he liked the young woman in the house, I think. And he, and he puts the blood over that house, and then that Egyptian has to leave with the Israelites because he had blood over his house. But the idea was you would, you would take the blood from the lamb and put it on the doorframe of your house, and then as the destroyer came through Egypt, he would pass over the house when he saw the blood and you would be safe. And that's how the Passover began. And Moses gave them that meal before that night. And while the, while the destroyer was passing over Egypt, if the Israelites did not have their blood over the doorframe, the, God would destroy the firstborn of that family. But when he saw the blood, he passed over that house. It's where the Passover comes from. Jews still celebrate it today. It's now their, their major holiday, their major celebration. As they gather their family together and they eat their lamb and as they eat the bitter herbs to remember the slavery in Egypt, it's a, it's a time to remember what God did when he rescued their people and he brought redemption to them. Uh, let me say one more thing. I read an article a couple of years ago written by a couple of rabbis. It was actually in Christianity Today. And in the article, uh, these two rabbis were saying Christians should not have Passover meals because it's, uh, it's destroying, uh, it's, not, it's not right to do that for another religion. Here's what they said the Passover means. 
They said the Passover Seder expresses the belief that God who redeemed us once from Egypt will in the end of days inaugurate the Messianic era for the first time, redeem the Jewish people from the exile in which we now find ourselves, and ultimately bring God's eternal reign of peace and righteousness to the entire world. It is the meal that celebrates that Jews are God's chosen people with a unique mission and points back to what we believe is the first and only divine revelation at Sinai. Now, first of all, when he says it points back to what we believe is the first and only divine revelation at Sinai, to me as a Christian, I go, well, you're missing it. You've missed the final revelation and really the clearest and best revelation of God. That's his son. I write this. It's sad that the people who have celebrated the Passover for 3,400 years missed the whole point in two large ways. Number one, John the Baptist says about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Passover is not just an event you look back to and say there's the great event in history. The Passover was actually the small event looking forward to a great event that was going to come. And that was Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. The Passover was just a little inkling of something great that God was going to do when he sent his son to hang on the cross and shed his blood so that the destroyer would pass over us. That's point number one. Point number two, Jesus says in this passage, I'm not going to eat it again until I eat it when it's fulfilled in the kingdom. How is the Passover fulfilled in the kingdom? I think John the Revelator tells us, chapter 5, when he says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, for with your blood you purchased people from every nation, from every tribe, from every language, from every clan. That is the fulfillment of the Passover that we will celebrate in the, in the kingdom in the future with Jesus Christ. I'm looking forward to sitting down and eating with Jesus Christ in that coming kingdom and celebrating the Passover with him at that time when somebody from every nation and every color and every language and every tribe, we will be with them and we will celebrate together. I'm way off notes. I haven't even started the sermon yet. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Remember when George, George Bush... Uh, George Bush II, George Bush Younger, ran for president. And uh, they, said, they said he won, besides the legal issue, uh, they won because uh, George Bush was the person people most wanted to sit down and have a beer with. That's how people felt. They felt like he's the kind of person I just love to sit down and, and share a time of fellowship with. Uh, Jesus Christ, I think, is the person we'd most, most want to do that with, and that's what we're going to do in the kingdom. Right? That's, what, that's what Jesus is promising in this passage. I will not celebrate it again until I eat it with you and drink it with you in the kingdom. Wow, I want to do that. Sit down at a table with Jesus and celebrate. Okay, the sermon. Okay, verses uh, 1 through 6. Uh, I call verses 1 through 6 preparation for the real Passover. Preparation for the real Passover. In preparation for the real Passover, you would choose a lamb uh, two to four days before the Passover, and you would look after that lamb all that week 
so that you were ready to slay the lamb on uh, preparation day. The lamb was already chosen. You're not running out at the last minute to the grocery store to buy a lamb. Uh, that, would be, that would be a disaster. Uh, so you had to do that beforehand. I think that's what the chief priests are doing. Verse 2, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, but they were afraid of the people. So they've already made their selection. We want to get him. How are we going to get him? Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Uh, it's my opinion that Satan knows that Jesus is going to die on the cross, and he knows that Jesus is going to pay for the sin of the world, and Satan knows that Jesus' death on the cross is going to destroy him. I think Satan knows all that. He knows it. And so you have to ask, why is he doing it? Uh, because he wants to make it as dreadful, as painful, and as terrible as he possibly can. And so even while he is assuring his own destruction, and even though he's providing for our salvation, at the same time he's trying to destroy people. He's trying to destroy the chief priests. He's trying to destroy Judas. He's trying to destroy Peter right, sifting him so that he'll deny Jesus. He's trying to destroy the disciples so that they will argue over who's the greatest. He's trying to destroy the disciples by making them run away, and he wants to make it hurt for Jesus as much as possible so that while Jesus hangs on the cross, he's there all by himself, and none of his friends are there to comfort him. He knows what's coming, and so he's trying to put as many problems in God's plan as he possibly can. And so he enters Judas. Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And so they're talking about it. How can we get him? Where can we get him? What's the best time? Where will he be? How will you do it? What will the sign be? Um, how few people can we have around him and then arrest him? And they're making all of these plans, discussing it. Verse 5, they were delighted. Judas comes up with the plan. They're excited. They're happy. This is great. And they agreed to give him money, 30 pieces of silver. And that's the greatest part. Judas works cheap, betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, what somebody could earn in a month. It's cheaper than hiring people to try and watch Jesus and follow him and find him. Just have one of his own disciples do it. Verse 6, he, contented, he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So that's number one. Preparations are made for the real Passover lamb to be chosen. Number two. Verses 7 through 13. Preparations for the Passover for Jesus and his disciples. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the, which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus said to Peter and John, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Verse 9. Where do you want us to prepare it? Verse 10. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. Say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. I've often thought, what if I met the wrong guy carrying the wrong jar of water? <laughs> Go to the wrong house. But of course, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. That's the, point that, that's the point Luke's trying to show you. He's in complete control of the situation. He knows where he's going, and he knows where he's heading. The goal? He wants to have a final Passover meal with the disciples in secrecy so that this crucial time with his disciples is not interrupted. After all, this would be a good time to arrest Jesus. If Judas knew where this was, that would be a wonderful time to get him. 
So notice Judas is left out. The disciples don't know where they're going to eat. They don't know. Peter and John don't know. They're making the preparations. They don't know. They walk into the city and they follow a guy with a jar of water. They don't know where he's going. But that's the place. And later that day, Jesus and his disciples show up. Verses 14 through 23. Jesus gives us a new feast and a new covenant. Jesus gives us a new feast and a new covenant. Verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table. You usually lied down when you, when you ate. Usually laying on the floor with, uh, with uh, pillows and whatever around you. And uh, I've tried to tell Joanne, that's why I should eat on the couch. I'm just doing what Jesus did. The idea is that the meal lasts a long time. So you would just lay down uh, together, reclining, taking your time, enjoying the time with others. Verse 15, he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. In other words, he knows what's coming, right? He's walking towards it. And uh, he knows he's going to suffer. He knows he will never eat the Passover again. He will never eat with his, this Passover with his disciples again. This is the end of his life. I've often thought, uh, what would I do if I, if I was like Jesus and knew I had five hours of freedom left, 12 hours of life left? What would I do? Uh, probably not share a meal with you, right? I would probably want to call my family and I would want to get together with them. And Jesus, of course, spends this night in hours of prayer. I was thinking about it, you know, something humanly I would think, if I know I've got 12 hours to live, do I want to spend hours in prayer? Humanly, I would think it's a waste of time. Jesus is showing us his priorities. Spend time with his disciples. Spend time in prayer. That's what he does with his last few hours. He wants to eat this with them. And, of course, he wants to eat this Passover with them. Verse 17, after taking the cup... Uh, usually a Seder meal had four cups. Now, by the way, we don't actually know what Jesus did at the Passover. We don't know what they did at Passover meals in first century. What the Jews do today comes from the second century, uh, third century, 200 A.D. and later. Um, so as we read what Jesus is doing here, this is the only account of a Passover meal that we have from the first century. Um, we have accounts of them killing the Passover lambs, but we don't have accounts of Jews telling us what they did at a Passover meal in the first century, other than what we find in the, in the, in the Bible. But it, around 200, there would be four cups that would be drunk. And we think that the third one is the one where Jesus said, this cup is my blood which is poured out for you. Uh, John Hopman once said to me, sorry, John, um, this is a this is a bunny trail. Um, Carol was just we were talking about Murray Taylor last night. I was with Carol and Peter. Carol said that Murray Taylor loved the dummy, and that when John would bring that out and sit it there on his uh, thing, Murray just thought it was so wonderful that that dummy could talk, <laughs> and he would just watch the dummy talk, and he and he loved that. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh yes, John, John said to me. John said, well. The Bible says Jesus drank wine. Now, the Bible doesn't say he drank wine at the Passover, but that's what he drank. But the Gospels don't say that. The Gospels always call it the cup, right? This is the cup, or drink from this cup, or the fruit of the vine. But in reality, this is spring. They don't have fresh juice. This is wine that has been fermented and stored, and that's how, that's the, that's how you would store 
That's how you store grape juice for a long period of time. Otherwise, it just goes sour and bad. You have to ferment it and store it like wine. So Jesus is drinking wine, but the Gospels don't say, call it wine. There's a bunny trail, too. He took the cup. He said, divide it among you. I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. This is my body given for you. When we take the bread, of course, it's broken, symbolizing the broken body of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I'm going to give my body for you. What should we do? Do this in remembrance of me. It's powerful when you think. He is saying, this is my body. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant. The Passover lamb came at the time of the old covenant. Jesus said, this is something new, the new covenant. A new, a new establishment of a constitution between God and man, a new agreement based on the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Poured out means it's a mess, means he's killed, murdered. In uh, thinking about preaching this, usually before I preach a sermon, I read five other sermons that other people preach. They might have good ideas. I want to steal them. And uh, John Piper uh, writes about this chapter, and he's got a sermon series called The Spectacular Sins in Human History, or The Spectacular Sins in the History of the World. And if the, the first one is the fall of Satan from heaven, and the second one is Adam and Eve eating from the fruit. But he calls this one the vilest sin in the history of the world, the most spectacular, the murder of Jesus Christ, the person who is the best, the most innocent, the person who deserved to be loved, honored, and worshipped is instead taken, beaten, broken, killed, murdered, hung on a cross, hung on a cross because that was the best way to humiliate you, completely humiliate you as you kill the criminal. That's why you crucify somebody. And yet Jesus says it's poured out for you for you. Morning, it's so wonderful as we think about the cross of Jesus Christ, as we think about his road to the cross, how he has it set before him and he walks toward it. He does so deliberately. It's the plan of God. It's the will of God. But he does it for you. Point to myself. He does it for you. Pours out his blood for you.